The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Great to be with you. Let's pray. Ask for God's help. Lord, thank you for our church. Thank you that we can come before you today. Thank you for those who've been here for years and years, and thank you for those for whom coming here is a a brand new experience. Lord, you know each one of us, our entire story, our minds, our hearts. You know where we are. in our relationship with you and our attitude towards you. Lord, we each confess our sin, our need for you, Lord. We haven't loved you as uh, we know we should. We haven't loved our neighbor as we expect them to love us, Lord. We need your forgiveness. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we lift up to you the burdens of our hearts, our pains, our concerns, our anxieties. Lord, help us to trust you with them. Help us to see what you're doing in our lives through them. Help us to continue to lean on you and hope in you. Lord, we pray for those of us who know you that um, you would continue to work more and more within us so that we might be like you in increasing measure. Give us your mindset. Give us your character. Help us to love what you love in the way that you love it. And Lord, for anyone who's just, who does not know you, have not has not trusted themselves to you, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to them, the reality of your greatness to them, 
and uh, that you would introduce yourself to them in a way that they cannot escape. Lord, speak to us now as we look at your word. Give us wisdom and understanding what you say, and please help me to teach it faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I don't think I've ever met anyone who likes to be warned, who enjoys being warned. Anybody, you're like, ooh, I love to be warned. And nobody likes it when somebody gets up in his or her face and says, hey, you're going the wrong way. You are messing things up. And if you continue in this, you're going to get burned. It's going to go bad. You need to stop. I'm warning you. How many of you are like, oh, this is awesome. Tell me more, right? Nobody likes to get warned. How do you feel when you're getting warned? I feel defensive. I feel attacked. I feel like an argument's coming in. I feel like I want to I get out on fight or flight, right? Nobody likes to be warned. So, okay, is it ever loving to warn someone? Is it ever good for you to listen to a warning? I mean, heck, it's Mother's Day, right? Come on now. What's your mama been doing, you know? Uh, I bet she warned you once or twice, right? And I bet you didn't want to listen. You didn't want to admit you were foolish and you were humbled and you needed, to, you needed good advice. But uh, looking back, many of us, I think you'd probably say, why'd she do it? Why'd she warn you? She loves you, right? She loves you. We're going through the Gospel of, of Luke. We like to go... Right through books of the Bible here at Fountain of Life. And uh, a major reason for that for me is that it keeps us honest. It keeps us honest. You get a more, under, uh, a more honest understanding of what the author is saying in his book or his letter when you see how the whole book fits together. It's more honest. You don't take them out of context. But more than that, you're forced to honestly consider passages you might be tempted to overlook. And that's kind of one of them today. <laughs> uh, I usually don't get the itch to go, man, I want to bring, I want to bring a message on wrath and hell today. Everybody's going to love that, right? But when you're preaching through a book and uh, the next passage is Jesus warning people, you're left with a choice, right? Is this God's word for us today? It is. And, um, is Jesus a trustworthy source? I mean, if you're going to listen to a loving person, a wise person, you're going to get warned. Who better to be warned by than Jesus? So to be frank, in this passage, Jesus is warning people who would never dream that they are in danger of hell. That hell is exactly where they are heading. Jesus is warning people who would never dream that they are in danger of hell. That hell is exactly where they are heading. Yikes. Are we allowed to talk about hell? Should we talk about hell? Do you want me to talk about hell? <laughs> Did you know that uh, even in our more secular society, it was amazing for me to realize this, most people still believe in hell. Uh, according to a recent Pew Research Center poll, about 60% of Americans believe in hell. It's less than it used to be, but um, way over half, 60%. And this blew my mind, 30% of people who claim they have no religion say they believe in hell. 30%. So it remains a common belief, but here's what's even more strange. Plenty of people believe in hell, but nearly no one thinks they're going there. 
According to a Barna survey, this is a little bit older, nearly two-thirds of Americans say they believe they will go to heaven. And only one half of 1% said they thought they would go to hell. <laughs> Man, nobody's going to hell. Hell's going to be like the evening service on Super Bowl Sunday, right? <laughs> Empty. Unless maybe the Patriots make it again, then y'all be coming and praying. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so, so, yeah, in this passage today, Jesus is going to warn some of the most seriously religious people the world has ever seen. Their minds know vast passages of Scripture. They never miss church. And they presume that, of course, they will go to eternal paradise just like everyone in America. And Jesus will warn them that they're in danger of hell. And he does it with a story. I think it's a parable. Um, why do you think he tells a story for this? Why does Jesus tell stories? Maybe because it's a little less threatening. Maybe it's because you come around it and you have to ponder it and think about it. And maybe it'll kind of come alive to you as you walk through it. But, um, you know, whenever Jesus deals with the Pharisees, we all have a, point, uh, a choice, right? It would be more fun and easier just for us to sit here and go, man, those Pharisees were idiots. Ha! Glad we're not like them. Or, maybe it's true that all of us have a little inner Pharisee. And, uh, and maybe we need to, we're, we're not identical with them. But uh, maybe we need to learn from the warning. And listen to it. Because if you believe that hell is real, and if you believe that you deserve to go there, wouldn't you want to know the way out? And wouldn't that be about as precious to you as anything ever could be? Yeah. And that's what Jesus has given us today. So we're going to take the story in four parts. The setting, I think, is real important for understanding what Jesus is doing in the story. Then we're going to see this surprising reversal. So you get a setting, surprising reversal. Number three, you're going to get the plea. So this, this guy in, in hell makes a plea. And then four, you finally see the point. And that's how parables work. They're usually about one point. The story tells you about one important spiritual reality. So that's what we're going to do today. Let's start with the setting. Now, I know we have spread out our study of Luke 15 to 16 over several weeks, but just to back up, this is the, um, the conclusion of this conversation that Jesus has been having since Luke chapter 15. Chapter 15 and 16 are, are kind of like one big conversation, and, and a lot of times it has to do with Jesus talking to the Pharisees. So let's remember them just a little bit. Religiously, serious, not serious, very serious. Are they spiritual people? Yes. Do they believe in God? Absolutely. Not one of them is anything near an atheist. Can you be in danger of hell even though you're spiritual and believe in God? Yes. They have some doubtful assumptions we've been seeing as we've gotten to know them. Number one, they take for granted that nice circumstances and being spiritual is an obvious sign of God's approval. So they think that if you're spiritual externally and you do these practices and you have some wealth and some health, that means you're good with God. 
It means you're good with God. It was a common theological idea of the time that if you were poor or sick or if you had broken too many of the rules, you were an outsider and there was no hope for you. And so your external circumstance back then, they believed, was a sign of how right you are with God. And it still kind of lurks around today, right? If your life's going well, if you got money, God loves you. If God loved you, he would give you those things. That's what people expect. And then if you're sick or if you've had a, a ruinous past, uh, hey, there's no hope for you. It's over. It was a common expectation of the time. It's a doubtful assumption. And so they're taking for granted that they're in with God and that others are out. And so the poor and the sick would be under God's judgment. There's a reason they're like that, right? Even Jesus' disciples were into that. If you remember John chapter 9, they see this guy born blind and say, Oh, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it him or his parents? You know, happy Mother's Day. Was it him or his mom? You know, why is he blind? And Jesus' answer is basically, no, okay. Your whole concept on this is wrong. So they take for granted that they're in and others are out. They're the good ones, others are bad. So they, they're, ta- they're presuming, right? Where are they going to go when they die? Their concept of heaven, the presence of God. They're good, they're good with God. Look at their wealth, look at their external religion. But as we've been walking through 15 and 16, we've been seeing that they don't actually worship who they think they worship or who they say they worship. They're inward idolaters. We looked at that last week, and if you miss it, I'd love for you to get on the website and check that out. They're inward idolaters. Now, if we could meet a Pharisee, they would curse and scoff that I said the word idolater about them, wouldn't they? Because their whole thing is, man, that's what brought our country to ruin. I would never bow to a statue. And then you might say to Mr. Pharisee, man, you don't need a statue to be an idolater. And we saw this last week. Just as we walk through 15 and 16, you remember at the beginning of chapter 15, um, Jesus is pushing on them. So they're upset in the beginning of chapter 15. Look at 15 verses 1 to 2. I think I have that up there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Who, who are those people? Well, they're, they're bad, right? They're the outsiders. They don't want, those people are going to hell. They're drawing near to Jesus. And Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and, and said, Ah, oh, this man eats with, he can't be doing that. Right? Do you see? They're the bad people. We're the good people. And so then you get into Luke 15, where Jesus tells that a wonderful parable, right, of the prodigal son. And the whole thing of it is, this is the father's heart to seek and save idolatrous lost sinners and bring them near. And so that when they repent and when they turn, he, the father embraces them as children, puts the coat on them, gives them the ring, puts the shoes, kill the calf, have the feast. They're welcome. God's grace saves people. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, hey, wake up. You need this. Join in. Beginning of chapter 16, um, we saw Jesus talk to his disciples about participating in the Father's heart. Hey, because the Father is going out to seek and save the lost, you do it too and use your resources, we saw, right? Use your resources, your money, your job, your relationships, your time. Use everything you can to join in with what the Father is doing. Seek people out. Let them hear the gospel. And then we saw Jesus say, how you spend your money reveals what you worship. Look at Luke 16, 13 and 14. No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve who? God and money. You'll love one and use the other. Which one is it? 
Do you love money and use God? Hey, God, bless me. Or do you love God and you use money for his kingdom and his purposes? What's the Pharisees' response when they said that, when he said that? You remember? Verse 14. When the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things, what do they do? They ridicule him. They're protecting their idol because Luke lets us in. What do they love? They love money. They love money. Who do they say they worship? The God of the Bible. Who do they externally worship all the time? The God of the Bible. Who do they really worship? At least in some way, it's money. It's not God. They're idolaters. He's exposing them. So they got to make fun of him. He's hit, their, he's hit their pain point. They protect their idol. Hmm. So I just want to ask you as we uh, move forward, does anybody in here have anything in common with a Pharisee? You ever find that uh, you think God loves you based on how well you're doing that week, right? Do you ever find that you're more in the in crowd than whatever group it is? You know, the Pharisees used to do, we're good, they're bad. It's kind of hip today to go, hey, I'm with the bad people and the outsiders. I really hate the self-righteous, okay? If you hate the self-righteous because they're self-righteous, guess what that says about you? You're self-righteous, okay? So it's this insider-outside based on human performance. Man, yeah, I do that. Um, tempted to say you love God, but your actual theology isn't the same as your formal theology? Anybody like that? Or what you really love most, you wonder sometimes, is it really Jesus? We've all got a little inner Pharisee. So the Pharisees have this kind of worldview, these assumptions, and they presume that heaven is obvious for them. They presume, right? Even though they love money more than they love God. And so Jesus begins to tell this story. And it's a story that really fits like an essential piece of the puzzle with what's been happening to 15 and 16. So look at verses 19 to 20. There's a rich man who's clothed in purple, fine linen, feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The more you study the, uh, the details of how these words work together, you, you have what we would call an excessively rich man. Excessively rich. So remember when the, the prodigal father throws a feast for the prodigal son, and it's his feast? This text is saying that's how this guy eats every day for lunch. Massive, lavish feast every single day, which means how much money does he have? You know, it's just, it's spurting. So rich. He's wearing a fine linen and purple. So it's just, where does he shop, you know? Only the best, right? He won't even buy a t-shirt if it's under $300. Because you can't be seen wearing it. It's, it's that kind of just over the top. He's excessively, excessively rich. What's amazing here is what kind of sins is he doing in this verse? Any murdering? Thieving? Or is he just rich so far? It's just rich. Then you get an excessively broken man. He's late at the gate, so he probably can't walk. And the rich man's wearing all this lavishness. What's this guy wear? Sores, pus, dog saliva. That guy's eating like a, a major feast every day. What's this guy eating? 
He's eating his dreams about the guy's crumbs. He doesn't even get them. He's just wishing for them. Excessively broken man. So if you're um, inclined towards seeing that this is a parable, and I, I very much think that, within the context of Luke 15 and 16, who do these different characters represent? Who's the rich man that has it all together and doesn't do any big, bad, explicit sins? That's the Pharisees and everybody who thinks like them. And who's the, the excessively poor man? Sores, nothing, um, no hope, but yet he ends up in heaven. Who's that guy? That's all the outsiders who come. That's who it represents. All the outsiders who come. So we're set up here for this story. And as you know, as the, uh, as the Pharisees would have heard this, who would they identify with right away? I mean, who do you, who do you see yourself as? Who do you, oh, the rich guy, hey, he's got it all together. Come on, he's, he's successful. God must love him. We, we know where he's going to go, right? Where would he, remember the context, religious Jewish culture. We're not talking about a rich atheist here. We're talking about a seriously religious and spiritual person. Of course, where is he going to go? Come on, where is he going to go? Not where you think. Because now we see the great reversal. The great reversal. These two men die and everything is shockingly reversed. There's a reversal in their burial. In their burial. So part one, the rich man, he was buried. You had to be rich to be lavishly buried back then. You remember Joseph of Arimathea? He's got this amazing tomb cut into the rock, and you can put a rock, because he's rich. So he would have been buried. He would have been remembered. Everybody came. Everybody would know where he's put. Where would the poor man be placed in that society when he dies? Drag him to the ditch, man. It would be a mass grave. Nobody knows where. He doesn't get buried. He just gets tossed out of the way. So you don't smell him anymore. But there's a reversal. There's a reversal. What's the rich man's name? You don't know. What's his legacy? Oh, but what happened to the other guy? What's his name? He has a name. He has a name. And who grabs him right on the other side of death? The angels carry him. So you have the highest escort possible, right? Hello, you know. I mean, how, how many angels does it take to get you to pee your pants, right, in the Bible, right? You see one, right, and what are you doing? Ah, you know, help me. And uh, here, you know, imagine an escort. You, you die. An escort of angels shows up. Hello, you are highly valued, and we are here to escort you to your next place of residence. Huge reversal. Incredible reversal. And when, uh, when Jesus says he gets to go to Abraham's side, oh, there's so much going on here because the Jews, they thought themselves as children of Abraham. But, but he's a, the man of faith. And so when Jesus talks about the feast of the kingdom in Luke 13, many will come to the feast of the kingdom with Abraham. This is a view of future heaven. You get to go eat at that table with those people. Angels escort him in. A reversal in their burial. A reversal in their experience. What did the rich man have every day, all the time? 
just anything, everything, all the time. It's the American dream, right here. Everything you want, any time you want it. That's what he had. What did Lazarus have? Dogs licking his open source. Now, in our world, we're thinking of your, our pet dogs. And we're like, oh, at least he had Rover, you know. I love my pet dog, too. That is not the attitude of the ancient world. The ancient world dogs are uh, dirty, vicious, mongrel. Um, this, is, this is not a friendly, think of like a pack of coyotes or something. This is not a pleasant experience. He's victimized by these things. So the rich man just lives in luxury. Lazarus has it's your worst nightmare. It's, it, it's made to be excessive it's for the story. He has nothing. And then the reversal. The reversal. The rich man begins to talk later. Um, Send me some water and cool my tongue, for I am in what? Anguish in this flame. Verse 23, he was in torment. Now, it's tempting to go into like a study of hell and what it's like. And I'm not going to do that because this passage isn't really about the blueprints of hell. It's more about how not to go there. <laughs> but we do at least see words like torment and anguish. How many of you, when you're trying to dream up your future, you include words like torment and anguish? No, no. And what's the idea? The idea is... You would not be happy in God, the source of happiness. Our sin looks at God and says, no, I don't, I don't want it. You would not be happy in God. And so now you will be without God, and guess what else you will be without? You will not be happy. That's what torment and anguish express. It's awful. It's awful. You don't want to be there. It's getting what we deserve. So there's this reversal. The rich man had luxury every day. Now he's in torment. Lazarus had nothing but dogs. And now he's walking with Abraham in paradise itself. Do you see the reversal? The, the tables have turned. Everything has changed. But here's something that hasn't changed. It's their hearts. Their hearts haven't changed. They've only been, they've met their final end, their hearts. Here's what I mean. What did the rich man do for Lazarus? I mean, this is kind of echoing in the story, right? The guy's just leaking resources. He has everything he wants. And there's a guy at the gate with nothing, right? Ultimate nothing. And it's in his front door, so he pulls out in his Rolls Royce, and oh, there's that dirty... Lazarus again. What did the rich man give to Lazarus in this story? Nothing. It shows you a little bit about his heart, doesn't it? How would he have seen that outsider? Unloved by God, dirty, useless. And according to Jesus' parable in Luke 15, who should he be reaching out to? That guy, right? Look at how the rich man talks of Lazarus, even in this new state. 
So in the parable, I think it's a parable. I don't actually think like hell is like this plane of fire and then there's a big ditch that you can't jump over and then you're watching the happy Christian people, you know, have a walk through the garden on the other side. I, I think it's a parable. But these, these things all illustrate something. And so when the rich man talks, he's in torment, he's in anguish. What did he say? Did you see it? Who does he talk to, by the way? Abraham. He knows who's with Abraham. Who is it? Lazarus in the story. How does he speak of Lazarus? Get the slave over here. Bring me some water. His heart never changed. Even though the tables are reversed, his heart, it's not like, it's not like you go to hell in judgment and you're like, oh, God, now I see the truth. You're beautiful and I love you and I love your people. Oh, no. Your heart meets its end. God gives you over to the pride and self-righteousness of sin to where even as Lazarus is getting favor and grace with Abraham, he's, he's in judgment. He says, hey, send the slave over, bring him some water. He won't even talk to him. And later when he, wants, when he gives the pleas, like, send him out to talk to my brothers. His heart does not change. But Lazarus, the word there is he's comforted. It's a, it's, a, it's a broad word. It's a deep word. It has to do with being encouraged, being strengthened. It's hearing, well done. You made it. And we're going to learn about Lazarus' heart as we get towards the end, at least Lazarus of the parable. He trusted God. He believed. He was real, according to the, to the parable. And so his heart now is blessed, uh, taken to the full end of, well done, you did it. Welcome into my kingdom. Welcome into my presence. What does that chasm tell you about the situation? That chasm in the story. Can you just make a, a Hades totem pole, or a, what do you call those things? Pole vault. A Hades pole vault and kind of, you know, if you jump higher, you can get over there with Abraham. What does that chasm say? What does Abraham say about the chasm? It's fixed, man. It's fixed. What does that mean? You've moved in, and you're not leaving. That's the great reversal as well. Because there was a chance for things to change before we got to that death and burial. There was a chance for it to change. The rich man, he, he could have somehow repented, um, could, have, could have done something different. But now, now, it's over. Do you see the great reversal? Do you see it? The hopeless one who had faith is enjoying paradise, comforted and encouraged. The rich, smug, self-righteous, religious, spiritual person who presumed on heaven his hard heart. He's petrified now, and he's going to pay for it forever. That's a reversal. Whoa. Now the plea. Look at verse 27. And he said, I beg you, Father, Father Abraham, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So what's the rich man want Abraham to send Lazarus to do? 
go tell my brothers about hell. Because they're just like me. And I don't want them to join me. Believe that? He knows they're going to go where he has gone. They're going to come and sit with him. Wow. What is, um, what's Abraham of the parable's response to that? What does he say? Abraham said in verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What does that mean? They've got the Bible. They've got the Bible. What does that mean? What does that imply? What is Jesus saying? The Bible's enough, man. The Bible's enough. And then you could hear the frustration in the rich man because he says, um, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. What's, what's in the rich man's heart about the Bible? By the way, in context, he's heard the Bible every day of his life. What's, what's in his heart? The Bible? That's not enough. That's not enough. The message? That's not enough. What does he need? He needs to see a resurrection. You got to give him a sign. You got to give him something bigger, flashier than the Bible. Who's going to really hear the Bible? That's his his attitude that he's giving. Wow. Then they'll repent. And so I guess he envisions Lazarus walking up to the big mansion door, you know, sores gone. He's looking fine, dropped off by his angel mobile or something. Knocking on the door. Hey, what's up, five brothers? Uh, remember me? It was Lazarus. Trash in front of your front yard. You always ignored. Here I am. Just wanted you to know your brother's in a bad way right now. And he sent me here to tell you you don't want to go where he is. Wow. Then they'll repent, he says. What's Abraham's response? And really, these are... This is Jesus' point. Look at verse 31. This is Jesus' point in verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. What do you think? Is that true? I mean, I know you're like, well, Jesus said it, so Jesus. Yeah, it's true, right? What, what, draw it out. If, if we won't listen to the heartbeat of Scripture, Jesus is saying, it's not because it's not compelling or, or true. It's because we don't want to believe it all. And it takes such skepticism to reject Scripture that even a resurrection right in front of your face wouldn't be enough to push you over into faith because the bottom line is, if you won't listen to scriptures because you don't want to believe. That's what Jesus is saying. If, if this isn't enough for you, there's nothing that could make you believe. 
Could this be true? You know, uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus actually does raise someone from the dead. You know the story? It's in John 11. One of Jesus' good friends gets sick and dies. Jesus intentionally shows up late, which is very frustrating for all his friends, right? The man is dead, a couple days in the ground, so he's already in the hole. Jesus comes out and says, hey, open the tomb. Everybody's like, please don't do this. This is deeply awkward. He already smells. What are you doing? Stop. Open it up. He speaks into the hole and says, come out. And there's this moment of, and then what happens? It would have blown our minds. Oh, to see this. Dude all wrapped up comes, however you walk when you're all wrapped up, comes scooting out of the hole, and everybody's just, ah! Because it happens in, in front of a crowd, right? Everybody's there to mourn. So it just happens in front of all these people, and they're, wow, they're amazing. Jesus raised someone from the dead. Hey, just, just backing up, who does a rich man represent in the story? The Pharisees. And Jesus just said through the story to the Pharisees, if you won't really listen to Scripture for what it is right now, you wouldn't even listen if you saw a man raised from the dead. Right? Isn't that what he just said? I want to read you something from John chapter 11. This is right after Jesus raises that man from the dead. John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Verse 46, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So what did the Pharisees just hear, by the way? A whole crowd of people just went to the Pharisees and said, Lazarus was dead. He went into the hole. Several days, Jesus talked to the hole. The man walked out. They just told him that, a crowd of people. And this is the Pharisees' response. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. What did they just admit? He's doing miracles all the time. What are we supposed to do? And what would you tell them if you were the preacher in the room? What are we supposed to do? He's doing miracles all the time. What would you say? Believe in him. (laughs) Trust him. You just said it. He does miracles all the time. This is what they say, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. We can't have that. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Be a political disaster. Verse 49. But then one of them, Caiaphas, you got to love this guy, who was high priest that year, said to them, don't you love quotes like these? What did he say to them? You know nothing at all. (laughs) Everybody needs a friend like that in their life. You don't know anything. (laughs) Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 53, I'm skipping a little bit, but here's their conclusion. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. It's amazing. Jesus in his parable in Luke says, If you won't believe what the scriptures are saying, even a resurrection wouldn't convince you. Later on, we see in another gospel, he actually raised someone from the dead. And by the way, what was his name? Lazarus. It's amazing to me that Luke doesn't have the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. 
And John doesn't have the parable about the rich man and Lazarus. But you have what we call this unintentional agreement of the Gospels. And it makes me wonder, why did Jesus pick the name Lazarus for his parable to the Pharisees about how they won't believe? Because he, he knew good and well that one day he would raise a man named Lazarus and the Pharisees would have every evidence of it and they still would not believe. You think there was at least one Pharisee somewhere in there a couple of weeks later who wakes up and is just like, Lazarus, 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 Lazarus. Wow. So what's the point of this warning, folks? What is this point? According to Jesus, to escape hell, you've got to really listen to Moses and the prophets and repent. That word hear, verse 31, he said, if they don't hear, listen, accept, grab onto Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, it's tricky because what were the Pharisees always listening to and quoting? Moses and the prophets. So how is it that they don't hear and listen? Well, in one way you could say, well, look how they treated the poor. What do the Moses and prophets say about how you treat the poor? Love your neighbor, right? Provide. What would, would Moses and the prophets say about this lavishly rich man who's got this absolutely hopeless man on his doorstep and doesn't care, doesn't do anything to help the poor ever? Well, that's not Moses and the prophets. But I'm a little hesitant here because I don't want to give you the gospel of, if y'all just help the poor better, you could go to heaven. Some people have used this text that way. Well, if we really want to mess it up, we could say, hey, the people who go to heaven are the really poor people, and y'all are middle-class Americans, so there's no way you're making it, right? Uh, so you need to give everything away and lay naked in the streets, and then maybe you can go to heaven, because we just saw in the story, rich people don't make it, poor people do make it. There's people who use the story like that. It's like a social gospel. Well, come on. Uh, is that really how you get into heaven? Have you loved the poor enough to go to heaven? Could you ever love the poor enough to go to heaven? Is that what Jesus is telling you? Do you have to be under a certain like, financial threshold to go to heaven? And we could make a, well, I could make a handout for every nation or something, and we could measure all the economic stats and be like, well, you need to make less than this amount because God only saves the poor. Is that, that's ridiculous. So what is he saying? How is it that the people who know this don't know it and who hear it don't hear it and are totally missing out? Well, I think you'll get it if you think about it. Who are they constantly rejecting as Lord, Savior, Christ, and King? Jesus. Religious and spiritual people don't go to heaven when they won't surrender to and submit to and trust in Jesus. Jesus. And let me show you just so you know I'm not making it up. Look at Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 47. Remember, in this story, we have heard Jesus say, You need to listen to Moses and the prophets. And you heard the rich man say, Go back to my brothers, tell them to repent so they don't end up here. And so I want, to, I want you to see what Jesus does here in Luke chapter 24. Again, just a little background. Did the Pharisees succeed in killing Jesus? They did. Total sham of a trial Thursday night, crucified on Friday. He dies on the cross, and they think, aha, 
Mission accomplished. We're out from under that guy. But then, oh no, what's he do on the third day? He rises from the dead, and he appears many times in many ways to his disciples, and this is one of the things he said after his resurrection. Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about what? Who? Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Someone can finally hear it, right? The rich man didn't hear it. The Pharisees didn't hear it. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, verse 46, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should what? Suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And now because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, now, verse 47, what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. What's the Bible talking about? Jesus. I'm tempted here to take, well, it'd take me several years <laughs> to walk through all the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and show us, see it again, how it's all about Jesus. Come to Genesis Bible study on Wednesday, it's all about Jesus. It's Jesus, the way out of hell and into the Father's presence. One name. One name under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Who out of all of us deserves to go to heaven? I can think of one person. Jesus. And I hope that you have trusted in him today. I hope that you're hearing the message of this entire redemptive history of the Bible saying, look to Jesus. I hope you hear that. And if you have trusted in that today, who is it that took your hell? Jesus. I was discussing with some folks this morning. We remember the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. But what, what, at least part of what that creed is saying is that the reason you don't have to go to hell is not because you're a good person and you're in the in crowd. It's not because you gave to the poor enough. It's not because you're spiritual. It's not because you're religious. It's not because you went to church. It's not because you gave to charity. It's not because you're not as bad as those people. It's not any of those things. The reason you don't have to go to hell is because Jesus took hell for you on the cross. That's the reason. And the reason you get to go to heaven is because you get to ride the ticket of his perfect life, the only life ever where the Father says, perfect, come on into heaven. He is it. He is the only way, and he is the perfect way. Nothing can get you out of hell and into heaven if you don't have faith in Jesus. Nothing. And nothing can keep you from heaven if you do have faith in Jesus. He's it. And that's what he's saying in this parable. You hear this, and you are safe. You hear this, and you are safe. How beautiful. How beautiful. So Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in this story, the Bible you claim to love tells you about me, and I am how you escape judgment. And so you need to trust in me. That's the point of this parable.
Now, if you're a Christian, I'm going to guess you've heard that before. Anybody heard that before? I hope you've heard it before. If you've been coming to this church and you're like, I've never heard it before, I'm going to have to go tear my clothes and grieve and mourn. Okay, you've heard it before. But it's such a, maybe the parable's not simple, but the message is. And yet, just think about it one more time. This is what I was thinking about. I actually deserve to go to hell. I mean, really. And my heart has been so ugly in so many ways. And I was thinking, what if God just let my heart keep going in that? To where it finally petrified and cemented in this self-righteous, self-centered, God-hating attitude. And God just threw me into a joyless wrath forever. And I would deserve it. I think it's amazing the man in hell never says, let me out. (laughs) You got it wrong. And yet, God intervened in my life and in so many of your lives. And he opened your eyes to something. And it probably wasn't a resurrected uh, relative coming to your door. You believed the core message of the Bible, which was, look to Jesus. Look what he's done for you. Will you trust him? Well, you trust him, and you believed. How beautiful. If that's all you have today, you're doing okay. If that's all you have today, you're doing all right. What did, what did Lazarus of our story have in this life? Okay, you're all way up on him, right? How did he end up? He's all right. What did the rich man of our story have in this life? Everything. You don't want to follow where he goes. Just celebrate the simplicity, the beautiful truth of Jesus rescuing you from hell and earning your seat at the table in the kingdom. Three words to uh, hopefully apply. Number one, lean. Number two, look. Number three, live. Number one, be poor and lean on Jesus. Be poor and lean on Jesus. I can't help but thinking, you know, the Pharisees were identified with this rich guy, and they, they had wealth and they loved money, and I think it was an, an echo of their view of themselves spiritually. They thought of themselves as spiritually at least middle class, right? Look at all the good things I've done. Look at how much better I am than all those other people. And it was just a game, It was a fraud. Who is it that later on in Luke says, be merciful to me, a sinner? It's a tax collector. And Jesus says, that guy's justified. He's made right with God. So in our hearts, doesn't this parable say, hey, admit, realize that spiritually you're poor. You have nothing. Spiritually on your own, you're covered with sores. And look to Jesus. He's the one. Remember just a chapter before this one. He's the one that earned you the coat of the Father and the ring and the shoes. He's the one that makes you right with God. Humbly lean on Jesus, trust in him. Number two, look. Look to your comfort. You're gonna be comforted just like Lazarus of the parable. Look to it, imagine it. Is it true that if you're in Christ, I don't know, I can't say in detail, but are you gonna be escorted by angels into the presence of God? Maybe. 
Maybe, are you going to be richly welcomed into his presence? Is Jesus going to say to you, if you're in Christ, well done, you made it. Is there any joy in your heart anticipating something like that to be in the presence of God? Look to your future comfort even in the struggles and storms of this life. For those who are in Christ, this is as bad as it ever gets. Isn't that nice to know? Fine, number, finally, number three, live for him, live for Jesus and others. What did the rich man do for Lazarus? Nothing. What did Jesus do for you? Everything. He gave up his glories and his riches to become poor for your sake so that you could have what belongs to him. Aren't you heirs with Christ through faith in him? Aren't you going to inherit his kingdom? Yes, he gave, it up, he gave up all of it to give it to you. Amazing. What does that mean for us? Again, walking through Luke 15, Luke 16, Luke 15, the father's heart. He's going to seek and save the lost. Luke 16, the beginning, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, participate, join in what he's doing, use your resources, make friends for the eternal dwellings, tell people about Jesus, serve the poor. And so you see, now that you've received what Jesus has done for you, what's it going to make us want to do? You want to give generously to the poor somehow, aren't you? Because of what Jesus did for you? And aren't you going to want to share the gospel with others? I mean, even the guy in hell can say, somebody go tell my brothers and warn them. Do we need to lovingly, respectfully, skillfully, gently warn people about hell? Could it be true that this has to come out of our mouths to people who don't know? Jesus did it for us. Lean on Jesus, look to your future comfort in him, and then live for him, live for others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your honesty to us. God, uh, we admit our hard, prideful, selfish, rebellious, unbelieving hearts. We thank you for how you've worked in our hearts, how you brought us to yourself. You opened our eyes. We thank you, Jesus, that your perfect life, you've given that to us by faith. We are welcome into the presence of God. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross in our place. You took our hell so that there is no wrath, no condemnation. We're safe in you. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. Uh, And we pray, God, that as our hearts are satisfied in what you've done, that you would motivate us to be generous people like you are generous and to be forthright, bold people like you are forthright and bold so that others can escape what is coming, and enjoy your presence forever. Give us the strength and this wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.